Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to welcome Duffy Jennings here to speak about his book, A Reporter's Notebook, A San Francisco Chronicle, Journalist's Diary of the Shocking 70s, and here to talk about so many famous things. I didn't live in San Francisco at the time, but still heard about everything that was happening out here and uh, didn't realize it was Duffy that was doing the reporting. Thank you very much for coming, Duffy. Thank you, George. Oh, my goodness. You know, George told me he was going to introduce me. I should sit in one of the empty seats in the front row and just be ready to go. And there aren't any. So so it's a sellout. I mean, I feel like it's 4.45 in the afternoon and deadline's in 15 minutes. And I got a blank page in the paper and I better produce something pretty quick. So thank you all for coming. It's just it's just great to see such a such a big group. Um, And I know we're here to talk about the shocking 70s, and uh, absolutely, of course, they were just that for all of us here in the Bay Area in Northern California back then. Uh, but first, I do want to say that I'm mindful that we're in a more uh, tragic area right now, I believe. Um, only this one's affecting the entire country, and uh, most recently, folks in Gilroy and El Paso and Dayton. So uh, I just simply wanted to acknowledge both uh, the victims and their families, as well as the journalists and the other uh, first responders who are working at these tragic events right now. But that said, I couldn't be more thrilled to be here today um, for uh, several reasons, but one I wanted to mention in particular. uh, When Daniel David, the publisher at Grizzly Peak Press, first expressed interest in my book, uh, I looked on their website and I found, uh, I was looking to see, well, who else may, may have been published by them, and I found they had two books published by another former Chronicle reporter named Ernie Bile, but I didn't know Ernie because he had been at the Chronicle before me and left. So I got in touch with him, and um, I said, Ernie, tell me about these guys at Grizzly Peak. What's it like to work with them? So we talked a little bit, and he said, you know, I'm about to publish my third book with them. Uh, It's called San Francisco Appetites and Afterthoughts. He said, I'm having a launch party. Uh, two weeks from now at Joe's in North Beach, you should come. Uh, you can meet me, and then you can meet these guys from Grizzly Peak, and it'll, it'll be great. So I said, okay, super. So I go to the party, and oh, he says, oh, and by the way, it's my 90th birthday party. So I said, that's great. So I went to the to the restaurant, and a bunch of Chronicle people that I know today were there, and other friends, and I met Ernie, and I met Daniel and his group from Grizzly Peak Press, and I schmoozed around a little bit, and then I left. And the following four or five days later, I had an appointment uh, to meet the Grizzly Peak guys officially. And so I went to their office over in Kensington. And I walk in the door, and he says to me, did you hear about Ernie? And I said, no. He said, well, Ernie uh, went home from the party, and he never woke up. And I thought, the first reaction is, oh, how terrible. But then when you think about it, Ernie was 90. He wasn't sick. He published his third book. It was his birthday party. All his friends were there. You know, maybe that's not such a bad deal, but, um, but kind of bad timing. And then uh, last Christmas, I was invited over to the uh, 
Grizzly Peak Holiday Party in Berkeley, and I went in the restaurant there. There were a few people in a small group, and I walked up to the bar to get a, a glass of wine, and there was a nice-looking guy standing there, and I said, you, you look really familiar to me. And he said, yeah, hi, uh, my name's Jeff Adachi. And I said, oh, my goodness, yes, you're the public defender in San Francisco. This is a true story. And I said, what are you doing here? He said, I've written a book for Grizzly Peak Press. <laughs> and it was all about the original first public defender in the city of San Francisco in the 30s who ended up, he killed a woman and tried to cover it up. And there was a big trial and lots of news coverage. And he ended up going to San Quentin. But, and it's a really terrific book. And I said, oh, that's great, Jeff. And nice to meet you. And off I went. Well, of course, we know uh, it wasn't long after that. Um, if anybody's familiar with what happened with Jeff, suddenly died under mysterious circumstances in April um, in, this, in a strange case that involved a lot of media uh, ever since then. And in fact, I asked Daniel, are you going to publish the book anyway? And he said, yeah, in fact, I'd like it if you would write the foreword for us. And I said, oh, that, I'd love to. So then uh, the last part of the, of the Grizzly Peak <laughs> author, author's curse is that Daniel kept telling me, you know, the Chronicle's never really written anything about any of our books. I think we solved that problem today, didn't we? So, I have successfully uh, defeated the Grizzly Peak uh, author's curse. I'm... <laughs> so far, so far, okay? I'm, I'm obviously, I'm not the first Chronicle reporter to write a book. Uh, I might be the oldest, but um, lots of them have written books. My, my old friend Joel Selvin, he's written 14, 15 books on rock music topics, uh, Bruce Jenkins in the sports department has written a few books. My old friend Jerry Carroll has uh, written several novels. You know, we're, I guess we're sort of expected to write books. I mean, we're kind of like that insurance commercial. You know, we know a few things because we've seen a few things. <laughs> and, and we are, in many ways, eyewitnesses to history. And as they always say, we write the first draft of history. Um, one of my f former Chronicle uh, colleagues was a guy named Harry Jupiter. And Harry was a classic uh, journalist from the, from the old days, front page style, fedora hat, press card in the hat. He worked for the uh, Examiner and the Chronicle. He covered sports. He covered news. And at one point, he went to the Warriors to be their PR guy for a while. But when he retired, I saw him uh, at a ball game one day. And I said, Harry, how are you? And he said, I'm great. I'm writing a book. And I said, oh, that's super, Harry. I'm, I'm thrilled. What, what's it about? He said, well... I'm not really sure, but I have the title already. <laughs> I said, oh, I, so I bit. I said, okay, uh, what is it, Harry? And he said, everyone says I should write a book. <laughs> um, he also joked about um, having gone from uh, newspapering to PR for the Warriors and back to newspapering, and he was going to write another book called From Hack to Flack and Back. <laughs> but he didn't write that one either. In any event, um, so for all the books written by Chronicle reporters, I'd never seen one that, said, that had been written by somebody who's actually worked there and what it was like to be inside there and work at that time. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that uh, with you this evening. Um, and I'm going to read a little something from my book, and then I'm uh, more than happy to answer 
all your questions. Um, it, 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 I didn't. There's two stories to my book. There's a chronicle story and there's a personal story, which I'll explain here in a minute. Um, and then why I, I didn't really plan to be in the news business, but it just sort of happened. But I, I ended up, even under my graduation picture in my Lowell High School yearbook, it says, oh, he was class president, he played baseball, uh, he's going to, I'm going to San Diego State University, and my ambition is to be a writer. And the funny thing is, I didn't really at that time believe that either one of those things was remotely possible or true. But you have to put something in your high school yearbook. So at some point in my youth, growing up in San Francisco, I must have imagined a career in journalism. My father was a reporter, a columnist, an author. My mother was a Stanford English grad and a publicist. And both of my grandmothers were journalists. It's extremely rare for women at the turn of the 20th century. But if I did hope to be a journalist, it was only a fantasy. Beyond my afternoon paper route, I never had any plan to make a livelihood in news. But as we know, sometimes life just makes plans for you. I became a San Francisco Chronicle reporter at the dawn of the 1970s, one of the century's most turbulent decades for crime and social unrest in Northern California. The period was marked by political assassinations, serial killings, kidnappings, a mass suicide, attacks on police, a courthouse shootout, racial murders, gang warfare, and an assortment of counterculture terrorists and whack-job loners with guns and bombs. It was also a time of profound cultural and political upheaval, anti-Vietnam War marches, draft protests, the Black Power Movement, feminism, gay rights, and new excesses in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. In some ways, it was all connected. In just over 11 years, we went from the 1967 Summer of Love to the 1978 winter of hate. By then, I had covered so many major stories that I thought I was at the peak of my career, to the point where I had my eye on the city editor's chair. I loved my work. Newspapers were the kings of news in a pre-digital world. People got most of their news from the daily paper, either delivered to their front door or picked up at a corner newsstand. In start contrast to recent assaults on the media and journalists, when you were a reporter for the Chronicle back then, it meant something. You had sway, influence, and respect. At least in Northern California, reporters and editors at the elite uh, East Coast papers frequently ridiculed the Chronicle as the comical, <laughs> said it was soft and lazy and provincial and lacked in serious attention to significant national stories while favoring offbeat local features, who can forget um, the Last Man on Earth series or the terrible coffee story. Uh, but in my experience, we were serious enough that powerful, high-profile people in politics, government, and business dropped what they were doing to take our calls and answer our questions. Publicists either pitched us for coverage or begged us to kill a story. I regularly received letters, phone calls, and anonymous tips about malfeasance, mismanagement, malpractice, and cold cases. People with either a grudge or a sense of civic duty leaked documents to us. At press conferences and media events, all the other reporters knew who the Chronicle reporter was. One of my high school classmates said to me years later, 
Duffy, of all those in our class who became lawyers or doctors or judges or professors, you're the one who ended up with the most power. You're the journalist. Many of the people and events I personally covered and the other major news that occurred during my years at Northern California's then-largest daily newspaper are seared into history. George Moscone, Harvey Milk, Dianne Feinstein, Dan White, Jonestown, Zodiac, Zebra, Patty Hearst, the Symbionese Liberation Army, John Lindley Frazier, the Park Station bombing, the Marin County Courthouse shootout, Edmund Kemper, the Chowchilla school bus seizure, the Ingleside Station attack, and Herbert Mullen. I'm sure many of you remember many or all of those cases. In between, I embedded with the San Francisco firefighters at the city's busiest firehouse, riding the fire rigs and battling blazes with them. I spent days on call with homicide detectives, rode along with undercover cops on patrol, worked the police beat graveyard shift, and wrote about the many secret lives of an undercover narc. I covered city hall, local and state government, strikes, elections, storms, earthquakes, floods, a forest fire, and a volcano eruption. There were press conferences, publicity stunts, and must-go newspaper promotions. I was up in the darkness for two annual pre-dawn rituals, the Easter sunrise services on Mount Davidson, and the 1906 earthquake and fire anniversary ceremonies on Market Street. I wrote obituaries, hot and cold weather stories, and church notices. I waited to interview Smokey Robinson in his hotel room while he sang his latest hit song in the shower. I was there when Bing Crosby sang White Christmas at the Laguna Honda Seniors Home, when Paul Newman protested waterfront development on the Embarcadero, and when legendary oil rig firefighter Red Adair snuffed out a blaze in a Kern County well. I checked in on and wrote about my baby boomer Lowell High School classmates at age 30. Among many surprises, our student body president had shot and killed a sheriff's deputy with his own gun. Another classmate who had once tackled O.J. Simpson in a football game against Galileo High became part of Simpson's murder case defense team 30 years later. I was just 19 when I started at the paper as a copy boy. At 22, I earned a reporter's tryout that led to a permanent job despite having few college credits, no formal writing courses, and no experience at another newspaper. I watched, listened to, and learned from the most skilled newspaper journalists and photographers around as we gathered the facts about an especially gory and tumultuous era and reported the news to a half million readers throughout Northern California every day for the next 10 years. Some of my pieces sang and some missed a few notes. The paper submitted my work for Pulitzer Prize consideration and other honors, but there were also apologetic and embarrassing corrections for my mistakes. Having my name in the paper every week, often on page one, was a very public role brought me attention and compliments, along with pressure and criticism. I was on the front pages, rather, I was on the front lines for plenty of violence and death and had dozens of front page articles to show for it. All told, my byline appeared on more than 500 Chronicle articles. In the background, 
I struggled with the emotional toll of witnessing and reporting on so much human tragedy while trying to sort out my personal life, often a disaster of its own. My upbringing in a broken, dysfunctional family left me woefully unprepared to form and sustain normal relationships, accept criticism, express my needs, or set personal goals. By 1978, my seven-year marriage was on the rocks, and my alcoholic mother was in an advanced stage of cirrhosis. I had few tools to cope with either situation. But before any of that, indeed at the root of much of it, there was Club Dory. That was the eponymous gay bar my mother owned and ran in San Francisco's upscale Presidio Heights beginning in 1961 when I was 13. Think about that. A single mom and a gifted Stanford graduate with two young boys leaves a secure nine-to-five bank job to run a gay bar in a Tony San Francisco neighborhood in the early 60s, long before Stonewall Inn. Who does that? (laughs) Night after night and all weekend long, she served up cocktails with chasers of motherly comfort to her closeted clientele while defying police harassment and community scorn in a harshly unlightened era for homosexuals. Scores of men who'd fled their own parents in the Midwest for fear of being outed and banished found in Dory a nurturing and maternal ear for their insecurities and loneliness. The more time she spent there, the more it became a popular and discreet refuge for the outcasts of a heterosexual society. Business boomed, and yet, The more successful Club Dory was, the higher the toll it extracted, not only on my mother, but on me and my older brother, Dorn. Dory rapidly became more of a consumer than a proprietor, and we became more confused, conflicted, and ambivalent about our adolescence and our future. In the end, Dory got what she wanted out of it, unlimited booze and the inevitable death sentence. It was an outcome that she had failed to bring about in multiple DUIs, car crashes, and clumsy suicide attempts. What I got was a screwed-up sense of a normal family, a largely absent parent when I most needed one, an unexpected lesson in growing up fast, and total apathy about my future. In spite of that, I found a job that I loved and one that brought me the attention I wasn't getting at home. I managed to get through the worst of it with a strong support system of friends and newspaper colleagues that kept me working, mostly sober, and out of jail. These are my best and worst stories from those experiences at work and at home. I hope they convey a sense of San Francisco history that many readers haven't known much about or may not remember. So, why write this now, decades removed from that job and those events? The truth is that despite countless empty predictions about writing a book over the years, I simply wasn't ready until now. It's taken a lifetime to understand who I am, where I come from, who my parents were, what my values are, what I think, why I do and say things, and how I relate to others. And to be okay with myself about sharing it. In the words of Salman Rushdie, until you know who you are, you can't write. As a San Franciscan, I've always been proud of being a native son and of my contributions to a venerable city institution like the Chronicle. It's sometimes impossible to describe, but I think much of it shows through in these pages. 
So there you go. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions you have about any of those stories that we mentioned, uh, except probably who was the Zodiac Killer. (laughs) If that's what you came here for, you're going to be disappointed. It was, you know, almost 50 years ago uh, this October. It was 50 years ago this October that Zodiac killed cab driver Paul Stein in Presidio Heights. It was his last known killing. And uh, though he claimed many more over the years and many letters, he's never been caught. There have been no further murders pinned to him. And it remains a cold case for which I still receive, 40 years after leaving the newspaper, several times a year, an email or a phone call from someone who says, I know who it is. I have the proof. You need to check this out. Uh, It goes on and on. So I'd like to remind our uh, radio and online audiences that they're listening to Duffy Jennings speaking about his uh, years in the 70s as a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. And it's time for questions about those times here in the audience at San Francisco. So who would like to ask the first except for about the Zodiac Killer? (laughs) You have an interesting background going from uh, uh, the newspaper into sports, particularly into the Giants. Um, If you've read The Season of the Witch... Basically, there's a certain philosophy that's come out of that book that the darkness in San Francisco in the late 60s, 70s, even early 80s kind of switched when the 49ers won the Super Bowl. Um, um, And I, I guess the question is, what role do you think sports has played in the last 40 years in San Francisco in terms of changing its mood? My gut answer is minimal. <laughs> I mean, sports are, if you're a sports fan and you love it, I don't have any problem with that. I worked for the Giants for 12 years after the newspaper, but so much of what goes on is, um, is much more important to me than sports. I think sports is great for people to take their mind off the daily problems there are, um, and God bless all the fans and, and what they've been through, but sports is cyclical, and we've had good years, bad years, championships, lost 100 games. Uh, it's been through all of, all of it. And I have, it's been a while since I read David's book. When he called me to talk about uh, the moment I had with Diane Feinstein on the day of the Moscone milk murders. Mm-hmm. And um, he, uh, he, he obviously took a broader, different view, and he also took a much longer time span and included a lot more things than just news stories. There was music and there was other things. But I mean, personally, I think, uh, you know, when my marketing guy at the Giants always used to say winning cures everything. (laughs) So when teams winning, everybody's happy. And when it's losing, they're not. But I I don't see that it has a huge impact on the overall scheme of history. Seems to work in business, too. (laughs) Next question. In your years of reporting, did you ever receive death threats for a story that you wrote? Probably, but I don't remember. <laughs> um, of course, the, 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 the most famous death threat of any Chronicle reporter was the Halloween card that Paul Avery got from the Zodiac Killer mm-hmm. uh, in 1973 that said, you are doomed. Uh, and um, I spent a lot of time with Paul while he was working on the, ca- on the case. He was a veteran police reporter and had been a, a, a war correspondent in Vietnam, and he was sort of fearless and, a, and a, just a hard, a hard-nosed, dogged reporter. And I, 
I saw that and liked it, and I, I wanted to know more about it. I kind of learned at his knee somewhat about crime reporting. Uh, those of you who have seen the film Zodiac in uh, Paul is p- portrayed by Robert Downey Jr. in what I thought was at least Academy Award nomination-worthy performance because it was so much like Paul. Uh, and I said to him, so, so when, when he got this threatening card, we all came and looked around at, at it, and uh, within a matter of, I don't it seemed like hours, maybe it was longer, someone had made up these buttons that said, <laughs> I am not Avery. <laughs> 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 you know, they're like big campaign-style buttons. So everybody, everybody in the office wore them. Uh, in fact, Herb Cain did an item about this, and, and TV crews came scrambling up to the office to, to see this. And that's just typical newspaper humor. <laughs> I, you know, and I said, Paul, um, are you really nervous? And he said, no, not really. He said, I, you know, I've been threatened before. But, and he wore the button himself. <laughs> But at the same time, he started to wear something else, a shoulder holster with a 38 that he got a permit from Chief Nelder to wear. And uh, and whenever we went out of the building, you know, I just couldn't help looking around a little bit more carefully if I was together with Paul (laughs) at at people around us and um, cars going by. And it was just it was a little nerve wracking. And I, I said, I said, you must be nervous about this. And he said, nah, not really. Mm-hmm. And of course, it never um, came to that. But Paul was the only uh, reporter that was directly threatened. You know, again, journalists at that time it was pretty rare to be killed in the line of duty. I mean, today worldwide, there's 200 a year, maybe, mm-hmm. and a lot of it's in in the war zones, um, and pretty rare in in these areas. Um, I think the last one I can remember was this John Bowles in Arizona, whose car was blown up by the mafia. But it's, it's extremely rare. So we didn't really give it much thought. I'd been to shootouts and I'd been to other places, including City Hall on the day of the Moscone Milk assassinations, when we didn't really know if the gunmen or gunmen were still in the building, if they were, uh, if they were uh, a hit squad left behind by Jim Jones to take out all of his political enemies if he didn't make it back here. So there were some, there were some periods there of genuine fear and concern about where there's still shooters in the building. There's a full chapter in the book about that day. But uh, I just didn't ever really give it a lot of thought. At the Berkeley uh, Book Fair uh, about two or three years ago, there was a woman who was selling a book about her years with Jim Jones, and she actually was one of those that survived it. Um, She was a grandmotherly kind of woman, and she uh, really felt, although she thought it was terrible, obviously, it was still, prior to that date, the best part of her life. Um, And... I, I think it's it's an interesting uh, shift in the the kind of what was the big crimes, the big public crimes of the 70s and 60s, and what are the big crimes today, like we've just had. There's a, there's a different psychology to them. I mean, there was all the hijackings of the planes that everybody was afraid of, but but not very many people got killed on them. You know, I mean, it was it and and the murderers. You know, I mean, it was it was a different kind of thing. They they kept well, they didn't try to they didn't try to be so public and get caught and get killed. Basically. No, but and you know Jim Jones was a mesmerizing character mm-hmm. uh, who managed to work his way into City Hall and, and gain the confidence of George Moscone and even an editor at the Chronicle was going to services there. Uh, reporters tried to do stories and had them killed or had them spiked because mm-hmm. they didn't believe that what we were writing about Jones was true. Mm-hmm. They had to go out. 
um, my colleague Marshall Kilduff, who's still an editorial writer at the paper, had to go outside the paper to do a magazine article for New West Magazine about Jim Jones. Hmm. But, you know, here what what happened in Jonestown, Guyana, uh, being so far away, it was days before we really knew and understood what had happened there and that a congressman had been killed in all, and along with some news people and uh, and several others had been wounded in this ambush. And then suddenly... The reports were there were 200 people dead, then 400, and then suddenly, you know, ultimately became 900 people had either committed suicide uh, by drinking this uh, flavored drink, a Kool-Aid-type drink. It wasn't Kool-Aid. Um, and if they refused, they were shot. Uh, very few survived and got out of there. But for us here, most of those people came from the Bay Area and had been here originally. So it, it was a shocking, it was one of the, the most shocking Events of the 70s, even though it didn't occur here, affected a lot of people here. And then it was just 10 days later that Dan White walked into City Hall and killed George Moscone and Harvey Milk. And those were just 10 of the darkest days in San Francisco history that I can recall. Next question. Yeah. Speaking of Jim Jones, it's, sound, it's kind of ironic that um, uh, Willie Brown was a big power broker back in the day, and I believe he still is. I'd love to have your um, assessment of uh, who the greatest power broker is right now in San Francisco. But connecting the dots with Jim Jones, as you mentioned, um, in the books, several books that have been reported that, you know, they relied on him to get out the vote, right? Jim Jones mm. and his uh, church going uh, members to help Moscow win the election. I just wondered if you had any reminiscence of that. That's true that he did that. And that's why he was able to get uh, appointed to the housing authority at first by George Moscone. Um, In terms of power brokers, Willie Brown's still a pretty, pretty big one. Um, He, in fact, was also on Dan White's list that day, as was another supervisor, Carol Ruth Silver. White later confessed that to a his pal, Frank Falzon, the homicide detective, uh, while sitting in prison. Uh, but uh, Willie Brown had just come out of George Moscone's office a few minutes before Dan White arrived. Uh, and so he probably missed being killed by just that short period of time. So, th- so, those, were, so those were Dan White's four enemies uh, in the mayor's office and then on the board of supervisors and Willie Brown because of his support. Uh, of Moscone and his politics. Um, San Francisco is a very different place today. This is many, many years ago. I'm in no position to sort of comment to you on its current political status. Um, But at the time, uh, Willie Brown was and always, always has been influential. Sure. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. If I were a 16-year-old Lowell High School reporter for the high school newspaper contemplating a career in journalism, what would you tell me about the future of, of journalism? I'd like to think there's a, there's a positive 
answer to that question, but it, it's a little vague to begin with because journalism is so different today. If you're telling me that you want to be a newspaper reporter, I'm probably going to discourage you from that unless you have some way to uh, differentiate yourself from others. And it's very different. In my time, uh, I wasn't allowed to touch a camera. I had to go out with a photographer. There were very clear, defined roles. Uh, I went and took the notes and wrote the story. He took the pictures. Today, you have to take your own pictures, record your own audio, post it on several different uh, social media. And, uh, you know, Bruce Jenkins wrote the foreword for my book. And he marvelously describes the difference in the time period where there was a lot of activity and clacking typewriters and copy put into plastic chutes and sent down some vacuum tube to the composing room. And today he said that the room is dark most of the time. It's deadly quiet. And all you see are reporters kind of looking down into their phones um, to see what else is going on. Uh, so it's a very challenging environment. And there's no evidence that newspapers are ever going to really have a resurgence the way they had before. Some, of course, the biggest ones are thriving in this political environment, you know, New York, Washington. But I would say you have to kind of learn a little bit more than just uh, reporting on stories um, if you want to have a career in journalism. Right here. No, oh, just a second. Uh, Duffy, uh, can you, um, uh, uh, kind of like the last question, what was a typical day? H how did a day start in the newsroom when you got there? And when did you know you had arrived? What was your first tough, real story you had to go out where you were kind of scared if you could handle it or not? Probably the first day, I would think. <laughs> I, I had been there a couple of years. I had been a copy boy. I'd actually freelanced a couple of articles, articles for the pink date book, the Sunday date book through the courtesy of a good mentor, John Stanley, who was the editor at that time. Many of you know him from Creature Features. Uh, he's still around, John. I just talked to him last week. So he gave me the opportunity to try to write some things, and he published them, and he put my name on them, even though I wasn't actually a reporter. So when I finally got the chance to try out, um, it wasn't an earth-shattering thing. I mean, it was, it was great, but I, I had no idea what to expect. And when I got assigned... To, that it just happened to be the day of the first draft lottery, as George said. Um, he signed me to find find a kid who had this birthday. Well, how do you do that? <laughs> um, and as it as it was back then, the Chronicle used to print every day then then birth notices, the name of every child born, their parents, where they lived, and what hospital. Yeah, every day, a little column like this. So I went back to the library, or some call it the morgue. <laughs> True. Um, and they keep, they keep these things on file. And God bless librarians. I mean, without them, none of us would know anything. <laughs> and I told them what I needed to know, and they went and pulled out the birth notices for September 14, 1950. There were eight or nine boys on that list. And all I had was their hometown and their parents' names. So I would pull out a reverse directory and just one by one start calling to see if I could find one of them. And by about the sixth number, I got an, a number in San Mateo. A woman answered the phone. I said, I'm, um, I'm looking for your son, Mike. I said, I said, you know, this is Duffy Jennings. I'm a reporter for the Chronicle. And I'm going to scare the hell out of myself to even say that for the first time. <laughs> and um, she said, oh, yeah, well, Mike's a student at USF. Uh, he's in such and such a dorm. You can go, here's his number, you can go talk to him. And that's what we did. I, I told the, the city desk that I had found a kid. They gave me a photographer, and we went up there, and I found this guy. Well, 
it was a good enough interview because he was a procrastinator and he was not sure what was going to happen to him. But now I'm in the dorm at USF where they're putting up a huge board, bulletin board, and writing every birthday down as it's drawn out of this big drum in Washington, D.C., and these little capsules. So every draw was a was a dramatic moment, and you'd either hear yay or uh, uh, from 50 kids, boys, in this dormitory. And so I ended up talking to a couple more kids. So gradually, my nerves went, you know, once you get past the first pitch, Bob, as you know, um, or the first joke, um, mm-hmm. this is Bob Sarlat. I don't know if everybody knows. He's he's a well-known San Francisco comedian and the voice of the four, longtime voice of the 49ers. Mm-hmm. But as you know, um, once you get into it, 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 it moves along pretty well. And what I found out was the story I'd been sent to cover turned out to be a pretty good story. And I went back to the office and I wrote the story and I turned it in and I went home and I didn't know what to expect. And the next morning on my front step is the Chronicle. Uh, and I opened up the paper and I looked and it was on page 11. There's my story with a byline on it. Uh, my first day as a reporter which was absolutely unheard of. And I heard later through the grapevine, it pissed a lot of people off. <laughs> uh, reporters who'd worked six months or more to get a byline. Yeah. Um, and I had, I had good mentors there who helped me a lot as well. So I didn't have a, 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 ner- a sense of nervousness unless I went to an event where I didn't really understand what was going on, didn't know the language or the, um, the whatever the circumstances were. But for the most part... Uh, you know, people are looking to you to give you information. So it wasn't that hard. Yes. You chose to write a book about the 70s. So uh, I take it that you agree that it's a distinctive era not to be conflated with the 60s. I'm class of 79 Berkeley High. So, okay. you know, conflating our era with the 60s drives me batshit crazy. So how do you feel <laughs> about that? Well, actually, in the prologue of my book, uh, I set the stage for the 70s with a lot of what happened in the mid to late 60s, the free speech movement at Berkeley, and then the uh, you know summer of love invasion of young kids into the Haight-Ashbury. And, and then by 68, things were starting to turn. Um, the war was unpopular. Uh, Martin Luther King was killed. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy is killed. The Pueblo is seized. Uh, Nixon becomes president. Uh, the Chicago Democratic Convention is torn apart by riots by the SDS and others. So 68 was really a, a, a landmark year. And by the time we moved into 69, a lot of that was just growing and, and there were more protests and, and more uh, more counterculture activity uh, that, um, you know, by the time Zodiac attacked a young couple in a in a lover's lane in, in July of 1969, locally, uh, the barrier was already starting to get into turmoil. Um, but ours became, the 70s became sort of the, the worst part of the worst of those times. Um, the 60s had some more, um, you know, redeeming times with them. Um, but I see obviously one just sort of leading in to the other. You uh, spoke in your introduction about the trust that uh, you uh, felt in your era and uh, publishing articles in the newspaper. You just fielded a question about uh, what uh, what a person should do who wants to get into newspapers today. Can you comment on the the issue we see today of people being told that what they hear is not true? 
<laughs> we'll book you for another event. <laughs> well, yes, without getting too much into that, uh, clearly what has happened to journalism and journalists uh, in this current era is an abomination in my view, and it's a terrible uh, uh, part of the destruction of our democracy uh, and what's, what's going on with that. Um, I, you know, there are no easy answers. What I'm, what I'm amazed at and, and proud to see is how many journalists uh, are able to keep their cool when they're assaulted by this guy and others uh, for doing their jobs, particularly if they go to, you know, I, I, what scares me is, you know, this El Paso thing and the Dayton, and the Dayton thing is that it's, it's only a matter of time before a room full of journalists is attacked. It scares the hell out of me. And it must scare the hell out of any of them who, who are working and covering this government um, because the, the mood is out there. The, 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 it's been fomented that the journalists are untrustworthy or fake or, you know, duplicitous. And um, I just hope that it's a, a thing we'll get through. You know, I think uh, we got through the 70s. We've, we've gotten through a lot of other tough times. And I think we'll get through this, too. I hope the damage isn't too severe by the time it's over. But one of my one of my reasons for writing this book really is is kind of as an homage to print journalism and what it what it was back then and how important and respected it was. And there's a, there's a lot of discussion in here. I read you an introduction that touched on a lot of things, but each of those things are explored in more depth uh, in the book. And uh, and, I you know, I I respected every almost every colleague I had at the newspaper for how dedicated they were to what they were doing. Um, they, weren't, they weren't really there for the money. <laughs> you know, it, um, I started as a copy boy at $62 a week. Uh, I think the highest salary for a, a reporter then was after six years, you had hit the maximum. And it still wasn't very much. It was, I mean, when I left the paper, I was making $29,000 a year in 1980. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and obviously some things have improved clearly over decades. But uh, part of this is about trying to convey what it was like then uh, and how dil diligent and dedicated you had to be then to do your job. Obviously, we didn't have to report every five minutes on what was going on. We didn't have to uh, text and, and tweet the latest developments without having time to check whether they were right or not. Uh, and so they're under a lot of pressure today. And I didn't, you know, I, I just had to have it done by five o'clock. And, uh, you know, that's what it was in the morning when it landed on your doorstep. So it's, it's a very different time. And I don't envy them at all. How did you um, hunt down or find a story? Um, obviously, some sort of landed on your desk. But um, some of the others, how did you go about that? A lot of people don't know this, but in the 70s, we had the Internet. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it was really good old-fashioned detective work. You spent a lot of time before even going out on a story making phone calls, uh, trying to get a hold of people, pulling out uh, directories and reverse directories and... 
uh, envelopes of clippings. The paper was clipped every day by the library and, and filed by subject matter, by person. So you could find almost anything in the library of, uh, that you wanted to look back on. But, and, and very often it was good old-fashioned uh, legwork. As you know, My father's first book about being a reporter was called Legman. And there's a chapter in here called Legman about him, which is, you know, they had to go out in the street and knock on doors and ask people questions. And, uh, and that's how you got your information. But again, you had all day to do it. Sometimes you had a week to do it, depending on how, how special it was. But it, it, was, it was painstaking. Uh, but you couldn't print or write something unless you had all the facts already and you knew they were, they were secure. And if you did write it and the editor looks at it and said, but oh, what about this? And then you'd have to say, oh, okay, go back and check that and make sure. Was it three people, four people, whatever the, the question was. Um, but you could spend all day. I could be assigned a story at nine, nine in the morning. And as I mentioned earlier, at 4.45, I'm sitting down at my typewriter going, what do I what do? I do? But ultimately, that, that deadline pressure is what forces you to produce the copy. And I didn't miss any deadlines. <laughs> Were there any um, really one or two great highlight, good, wonderful stories? In <laughs> one or two in the seventies you could point to. Well, I have to say, um, being a fireman was really a heck of a lot of fun, and um, and to be allowed um, to to go into that firehouse and live with those guys and cook with them and sleep there and jump down the pole and get on the fire engine at three a.m was just, what kid doesn't want to be a fireman? <laughs> uh, it was an amazing experience. Uh, the, uh, an editor of ours uh, who lived back east had gone home on vacation, and he came back, this is 1972, and he came back with a book by a New York firefighter named Dennis Smith called Report from Engine Company 82. And, he, and this guy had written kind of the inside story of working in this firehouse in the Bronx that was getting 700 calls a month. And my editor came to me, and I was 24, and he said, we have to do this. You have to do this. You've got to go to, a, go to a firehouse, live there, do that, you know, do that. Well, we got permission from the chief. Uh, I, I'd spent three days at the fire college kind of learning basics so I wouldn't get myself killed. Uh, <laughs> they gave me a full-on regulation uniform with turnouts and boots. I had a yellow helmet, so the other guys would know that's the reporter at the fire scene. <laughs> got to, you know, so he doesn't kill himself. Um, <laughs> But otherwise, I did everything that they did, uh, and, it, and it took a long time to gain their trust to tell me stories that they wouldn't, had never told anybody else. Uh, I, when I was done, I wrote six pieces, a whole, a whole series of articles. Every one of them is in this book. And I won the National Association of Firefighters News Writing Award for that series, and it was entered in the congressional record. But I, I was just having a blast. <laughs> uh, and so that, that's one of the great uh, upbeat uh, stories that I can tell you about right now. Did you ever uh, know of any stories being killed or altered for political reasons? I, the, the, the one example of that I can give you is the night that Patty Hearst was kidnapped. It was a Saturday night, February 4th, 1974. She was kidnapped from her apartment in Berkeley. Her boyfriend fought these guys off. Uh, and they took her off, and we found out later, obviously, it was the Symbionese Liberation Army and this guy, Donald Sinkew. Um, and um, because it was a Saturday, you have to understand that at that time, the Chronicle and the Examiner had a joint operating agreement. 
So the Examiner was the paper that put out the Sunday paper. The Chronicle had no reporters working on Saturdays. They had, their Sunday sections were all done and put out, and they all went home for basically for the weekend until they came back Sunday to work on news for Monday. So on Saturday night, there's nobody at the Chronicle, and probably nobody at the Examiner, very few people at the Examiner that time of night. And um, the FBI came to both papers and said, don't do anything yet. Uh, we think we have a handle on these people. We want to do some more investigating. So please hold the story. And we're talking about the heiress to a newspaper fortune, right? But it's the Hearst newspaper, the examiner. <laughs> and so they said, okay, we won't print anything until you tell us it's all right. And the Chronicle really didn't have any say in it because they couldn't put out a paper on Sunday anyway. So that, that's a perfect example of um, government or some other authority telling us to hold a story. A lot of Zodiac material, uh, I worked very closely with homicide detective Dave Toskey, who was the head uh, inspector on that case, many years. We developed a relationship where he might call me and say, I've got something here I'm working on. I just want you to know about it, but I'm not ready to have it uh, show up in the paper. And this goes on all over the place in, in journalism. Good reporters get good relationships with sources, and they do promise to keep things quiet uh, for the benefit of both parties. But there's times when it's just too big, you can't make that promise. But in this case, uh, with, it, with Hearst and the FBI, uh, it, was, it was Monday before anybody knew that Patty Hearst had been kidnapped. My question is regarding uh, what San Francisco's reputation was in the 70s. I followed all these stories, having grown up in the 70s in San Francisco, and I followed these stories through your writing in the Chronicle. I've, to this day, I still subscribe to the Chronicle. So that was my source of information. My question is, how is these national stories coming out of San Francisco covered by other newspapers? And one story you didn't, not mentioned, there are so many in the 70s, whereas in 1975, President Ford, their assassination attempt by Sarah Jane Moore in front of the St. Francis Hotel. And at that day, I remember some people were saying, oh, that, uh, on the East Coast, oh, San Francisco is the coup capital of the world. Mm -hmm. And you probably remember that. So my question is, how were these stories covered outside the city of San Francisco and the East Coast it, and with reputation? Of course, it, it was rare to see a reporter from New York or Los Angeles or Washington or anywhere else in San Francisco, uh, even on these big stories, until a couple of days had gone by and it was still, a, a, you know, a story with legs, as they say. Um, interestingly enough, the the attempt on Ford uh, was the second one in three weeks because in Sacramento three weeks earlier, Squeaky Fromm, who was a Manson family devotee, had pulled out a gun uh, within a few yards of President Ford uh, and was had her gun deflected by a Secret Service agent or an FBI agent, I believe it was. So here was just three weeks later, another attempt on um, on Ford's life. And of course, it was big news for a couple of reasons, as you probably recall, in that uh, she took a shot and missed from across the street. He was coming out of the St. Francis Hotel and um, and she missed and she aimed to take another shot and she was deflected by a bystander. OK, um, and the shot missed and ricocheted and I think wounded a cab driver, but they got Ford out of there. So he wasn't hurt. What, who was hurt, though? was the man who deflected the shot, a guy named Oliver Sippel, who until that moment, none of the world knew was a gay man. 
But in the course of covering the story, this came out, and it basically ruined Oliver Sippel's life, as I recall. Uh, but he had done this heroic thing. You know, it's difficult when you are when you're in the public, in a public event, you you sort of have no protection of privacy. Uh, they people can take your picture. They can uh, do pretty much put anything they want out about you. And that's what happened in the simple case. But you're right. Two attempts on Ford. Uh, again, in the, in the preface to the book, I list maybe 30 events that happened in the 70s that uh, were huge stories. But uh, obviously there were reporters from other places that were here for the Moscone assassination, for the Dan White trial where I sat every day inside a bulletproof glass of the courtroom uh, with my good friend Jim Wood of The Examiner. Uh, and, after, and, and we were the only reporters allowed to sit inside this bulletproof glass. And they, the rest were in a gallery or down the hall in an, another room with, with television. So very often after a, a break, uh, I mean, I could see Dan White's face and I could see the prosecutors and I could see the jury. Uh, and some reporters couldn't. So after when there was a break uh, or lunch or whatever, uh, Jim and I would go into the press room and sort of act as pool reporters for these others from out of town who, even though it might come from a bigger paper, the local paper got preference. Um, so obviously, from time to time, all throughout the SLA Hearst thing, there were reporters from uh, L.A. here. Uh, mostly not a lot of East Coast reporters were here for anything, as I recall. It might have been a little too early in the 70s. But the with the AIDS, um, beginning of the AIDS endemic, because that started, I think, in the early 80s, or we were most aware of yes. that in the East Coast. Was there any talk about that here in no. the late 70s? No, not in my time. Okay. Uh, it really started early 80s. The Chronicle got a reporter, Randy Schiltz, uh, who specialized in it, covered it, broke national stories, wrote the book, and then contracted AIDS himself and died at a very young age. But it was virtually unheard of. What's interesting is a lot of that early stories uh, on that were written by David Perlman, the science editor or science writer, medical writer at the Chronicle, who just retired two years ago at the age of 98. Uh, now he's 100. I talked to Dave a couple weeks ago. He's as spry as can be. He can't move around very well. But, you know, he'd been there since 1945. And he he became kind of a national authority on this, along with Randy, and um, and broke a lot of those stories. But it was it was after my time. As a reporter, who's your favorite reporter? The, who's the, <laughs> the one person that you want to read at all times that you admire deeply? At the Chronicle or anywhere? Anywhere. Oh gosh, there's just so many of them, uh, particularly right now at the New York Times. Uh, and the Washington Post, um, and a couple of others. I love David Brooks. I, I would read anything John Meacham writes. Uh, I've been lucky enough to meet John and, uh, at an event. Um, uh, Maureen Dowd is a favorite of mine. Um, but if you're talking about sort of day-to-day reporting, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of them. It's really hard to, to kind of single them out. Um, I will tell you at the Chronicle, the single best reporter on their staff right now is Kevin Fagan. And his recent thing just now on homelessness was a huge piece of work. But he's also the Zodiac reporter. If anything comes up, he has all the files, everything that I, <laughs> everything I ever did. Uh, anytime I get a call, I call Kevin uh, and he's the keeper of the of the file. You know, maybe someday 
Uh, maybe with DNA they'll and relative DNA, they'll find something that'll point to one person. I, I kind of doubt it. But uh, Kevin's just an outstanding reporter. Great. We'll, we'll have one more question. Okay. I was wondering if you thought that San Francisco suffers still on the national stage from its historic reputation, which started in the 70s. I, I was in France in 2013, and offered an opinion at a dinner, and someone said, I can't talk to you. You're from San Francisco. <laughs> well, you That's know, a- the old line is it's the city of fruits and nuts <laughs> and um, other similar um, comments. And I will tell you that if you're talking about reputation, you know, politically, uh, I sort of embrace uh, our our reputation uh, for diversity and intelligence and culture uh, and beauty and everything that San Francisco has that so many places don't. Uh, so I don't really worry about what they think about San Francisco in other places. Uh, as I said, I was born here. I grew up here. I went to San Francisco City College, San Francisco State University. I worked at the San Francisco Chronicle and the San Francisco Giants. So I don't, I don't, they don't come more. They don't come more San Francisco than me. Thank you so much. Be glad to uh, sign your books. You don't have to take that personally anyway, because most French people would say the same thing if you'd come from Chicago or New York or Washington D.C. or anything from America. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, Duffy. That was great. Thanks, George. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs>